this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at jo- uh, Jonah chapter 3, and um, as you turn there, um, this week was an interesting week, wasn't it, for, for Christians? Um, some of you probably felt sadness and grief, especially Friday as you open your paper, watch the news, and um, just the realization that from the highest courts in the land, things have come down, that um, we would fundamentally, actually, let me just rephrase that, that God would fundamentally disagree with. And um, I know I felt grief. I didn't really feel angry. I just felt a sense of grief. And I, I know we have the need to be sensitive about the subject, but at the same time, straight about the subject, right? No pun intended. Um, but I, I was thinking about how, how Christians would feel and, and feel that um, maybe a sense of fear or a sense of outrage or, or a, a sense of reaction. And I just felt like the Lord wanted me to tell you what he said in Matthew 24. And it, he said, um, fear not. Um, don't let your hearts be troubled. This stuff's going to happen. I mean, we live in a world that's broken. We live in a world dominated by sin. We live in a world in which there is an evil enemy who is very much at work. And to remember that whatever happens, and, and the, the church has survived through, through all kinds of horrible stuff, um, communism, um, dictatorships, persecution, that our mandate remains the same. It's always been the same. Just to be faithful, to testify to the saving power of Jesus, to, to love mercy, to do justice, to walk humbly before our God, and uh, to love our neighbors, ourself. That has not changed, and that shouldn't change, and that's, that's where we're headed. And you know what? Jesus has told us, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to square it all away. So you don't have to be afraid. Just continue to be faithful, and, um, and don't let your hearts be troubled. Um, the king has conquered the cross, and he will conquer when he returns. Amen. I, one other piece of news. It's funny, it all comes out on Friday, right? Um, first thing was the Supreme Court. But then to read about the, like the, the bloodshed on three different continents, you know, like people laying out at the beach in Tunisia at a resort, probably just thinking it was a time of relaxation and rest to be like completely slaughtered by men with machine guns. I, I didn't feel grief in that moment when I read those stories and the man beheaded in France. I mean, France is not a third world country. I'll tell you what I, I felt, and this is just my honest, raw, unfiltered confession about what I felt. I just felt ticked. I just felt angry. Um, more than that, I felt in raw, unfiltered, unreflected, unjustified um, feeling. I felt like somebody would just push a green button that would unleash justice and wipe those guys out. I, that's, that's just how I felt. I thought, you know, I just wanted Wyatt Earp to come to OK Corral and just mow down the end. That's how, that's how I felt. And that's just being perfectly honest. I felt angry. And I know some of you probably feel the same way in the stuff we see around us. Anger. I had somebody this week, it's funny how it all piles into this week. On Tuesday at the gym of all places, he said, Pastor Dan, sometime I want you to preach a message on how to be angry but not sin. <laughs> That's a pretty good topic, right? I was like, how do you be angry and not sin? I mean, it's uh, Ephesians 4.26. Paul actually commands us to be angry. Some are surprised at that. We are commanded to be angry, but right after that, he says, and don't sin. It's like, there's, there's a huge gap between be angry and not sin that needs to be filled in sometime. 
You know, how do we be angry and not sin? How, do, how, how can you be angry and still have a sense of compassion? It seems to me that both those have to happen simultaneously. If, if we lose compassion and all we are is angry at injustice, well, we're going to inevitably become um, condemning and judgmental in spirit. If we're just compassionate, it's like, oh, it's okay that injustice happens. Well, then we're indifferent to, immor- uh, to injustice and, and immorality. So it means, I mean, we are moral beings. We are created moral beings, reflecting a moral God who is outraged at injustice. So in one sense, we have to be angry. In another sense, we need to be compassionate. And keep those both together is difficult. But that's what I, that's what I felt. And um, I, 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 I can understand maybe a little bit. Um, and I'm not going to answer the question of how to... Be angry, not sin, by the way. Um, But I can understand maybe a little bit of what Jonah felt. You understand that, you know, you transport yourself back 2,700 years ago. And and here's a prophet being called to to take a a message from the Lord to this group of people um, that we're so unfamiliar with, but he was very familiar with. Brutal, vicious, violent, bloody. My opening introduction um, message talked about just the brutality of this people, the Ninevites. Um, they were they were head severers too. They skinned people and impaled them on poles. So I won't say any more about that. Just that they were uh, ridiculously heinous and evil people. And um, I would imagine that Jonah was felt a sense of anger. And it's that sense of anger that sent him going the wrong direction. When the Lord was like, "Take this word," and he's like, "I ain't going there." to deal with those people. I'm going this direction. And we've, we've, we've covered the first half of the story. I told you the story has two halves. He disobeys, rebels. He ends up in the sea in the belly of Sheol, and God brings him as close to death as possible to teach him a lesson. He cries out to the Lord, and the Lord ends him up on a beach. Chapter 3, we meet him there. He's still angry, but the Lord extends to him a second chance. And this whole chapter, chapter 3, is all about mercy. Like it oozes mercy in some rather unexpected ways. Um, the mercy of the heart of God, both towards the prophet and towards the people of Nineveh once he gets there. But again, just keep in mind that he is going to people that anger him. Um, it will come into play later, and especially in chapter 4. But it begins with the mercy of a second chance. Verse 1 says, Then the word of Yahweh came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise. This is exactly how chapter 1 started. So now it's like part 2, story, um, act 2. <laughs> Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah um, arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. This is the Lord's way of saying, let's try this again. Um, you, you messed it up the first time and you almost died under my hand of discipline. Um, let's, let's try this again. And so the word of the Lord comes, comes to Jonah. And this time, Jonah, at least in outward act, he obeys the Lord. And he goes. That right there is a, is a mercy. That um, God extends to this rebellious uh, prophet. He extends to him a, a second chance. And interestingly enough, um, and I, I'm, what I'm about to say is going to seem out of place, but it's not out of place. Because I want to fast forward to the New Testament for a moment. Because Jesus makes an intentional connection between the Apostle Peter and the prophet Jonah that we often miss. Because it means something. That in, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, Jesus looks at Simon Peter. His name's Simon or Peter. goes by both. He looks at Simon Peter and he calls him Simon Bar-Jonah. 
or literally, Simon, son of Jonah. Now, most people don't pick up on that little allusion. The problem is Peter's dad, according to the Gospel of John repeatedly, is not Jonah, it's John. This is like Jesus is addressing the Apostle Peter and saying, listen, Jonah, your life and ministry is going to be a lot like Jonah's. I mean, Jonah was called to take the word of the Lord to Nineveh. Peter was called to follow Christ. Jonah choked Peter when he should have followed Christ to the end, denies Christ. He chokes. Both men, ironically enough, become the first men, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament, to take the word of God into Gentile territory in unprecedented ways. Interesting. Jesus gives Peter a second chance uh, when he didn't deserve it. Jonah deserved the bottom of the sea. Peter deserved to be denied by Christ because he denied him. But it's just a testament to the mercy of God who gives second chances that when you blow it, he doesn't say, you're done. Isn't that cool? It's mercy. It starts off with a word of mercy. That is his second chance. That's, that's how the Lord is when, when, when we fall down. It's like, get back up on your feet. He's a God of second and third mercies. He can't presume upon mercy, but he is a God who is endless in mercy. Well, he, he goes, and he delivers the message. The shortest message, perhaps, the shortest um, sermon in the Old Testament. Although I think you can probably find something that's shorter. It says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Now let me just stop there for a second and say that there's a lot of controversy over what three days' journey in breadth means. Some people think it took three days to get there. Um, some people think it, it, it takes three days to walk from one edge of the city to the other. Others have said it took three days to walk through all the streets preaching. Others say it took three days to walk around the city. Others take it figuratively as three days is just a, is a long time, so it's a big city. Whatever you believe about that, the point is the same. It's a great city. It took a while to work through it, that is to preach through it. And, um, and it was great not only in its size, but it was great in its evil and um, it's guilt before Yahweh. Now we continue on. Jonah began to go into the city, this hostile, violent, evil town, city, um, going a day's journey, and he called out. Now this is the only prophetic word in the entire book. This is the only oracle. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. Eight words in English. Some of you are counting right now, right? It's just like one, two, three, six, seven, nine. It's only five words in Hebrew. Five-word message. I mean, it is the mo most unartistic, most negative. There, there is no humor. There are no illustrations, no funny stories. There's no bumper videos. There's no graphics. There's, there's no emotional music. There's none of that. Five words. Five words, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, there must have been a sense in which Jonah liked this word. Why this is the only, like, five words that are recorded, was it longer? We don't know. But I think it's short for two reasons. One, it shows the reluctance of the prophet to do this job. And two, it, it's going to show the immediacy of response by the Ninevite people to just five words. But there must have been a sense where... He must have 
preached this with a, a, a bit of a smile in his eyes because this, this little sermon means that the hammer's going to come down against people that he perceives to be the enemy. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Most pastors would get fired if they only did a five-word message. Some people actually would probably be excited if the pastor only preached a five-word message. That was 20 seconds long. This is great. Roast beef now. <laughs> Five Hebrew words. But you know, they, they actually pack a lot more punch because the verbiage in these five words um, make unmistakable connection to Genesis 7 and Genesis 19. Um, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Um, the book of Jonah is saturated in references to Genesis. You have animals cooperating with the will of God. You have a flood spoken of. You have remembrance. You have all of these themes taken from Genesis, even the heart of God for the nations, Genesis 12. So it's saturated in Genesis. Well, in these five words, there are two allusions to two apocalyptic events of God's wrath. 40 days. You should remember 40 days as a number. The very first time it, it appears in scripture, it's a, it's a number, it's a duration that's given to Noah. He's like, 40 days, I am going to wipe the earth clean of every living thing on land, except for you and the people, you, your people, and the, the animals on the boat. I am going to destroy the earth. 40 days. It implies impending doom, apocalyptic kind of wrath, right? It's 40 days. The other time that 40 days is referenced explicitly is when Moses is up on the mountain and the people of Israel are bowing down before a golden calf and God says, I am going to wipe my people clean. I am going to pour out apocalyptic wrath on Israel. And Moses gets in the way for 40 days without food or water and pleads. And as a result of that pleading, God does not wipe them out. So both senses, there is impending doom. There is impending um, apocalyptic wrath. That's just the 40 days reference. But the last word in this five-word Hebrew message, overthrown. Nineveh shall be overthrown. That word appears repeatedly in Genesis 19. Um, regarding two cities that didn't repent. Uh, two cities that even if you don't know the Bible, you know their names because they live in infamy. That is Sodom and Gomorrah. And God said, I am going to overthrow the cities. I am going to rain down hellfire and sulfur and brimstone, and you're not even going to find archaeological evidence that they ever existed. That's how much I am going to vaporize this place apocalyptic wrath he was going to he overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah now with those two things in mind and allusions to Genesis you can imagine this has a little bit more punch than just yet 40 days it's like the sense is like within 40 days um, apocalyptic wrath is going to fall on this city from Yahweh that's it that should create a little bit of a, a stir you know now, we don't, generally speaking, as Christian people in our culture, like to talk about the wrath of God very much because we don't like to think of God as angry. And it seems negative, maybe depressing, dark, unuplifting. <laughs> but, you know, 
you were to cut out all the portions that talked about judgment in this Bible, it'd be really pretty small. <laughs> um, not to mention the fact that from the very beginning and sustained to the very end, there's one of two paths that people experience. Um, blessing or curse. Um, life or death. Salvation or wrath. And that winds its way through the entire body. Those are the only two destinies that await mankind. Salvation or wrath. And it's that, that concept and the fear of God's wrath is entirely missing these days. It, it, it just is. There's, just, there's no sense of, if we continue on this path, then we're going to have hell to pay, you know? We tend to think, listen to this, uh, we tend to think when we think, even as Christians, we think of sin. I mean, that wrath is... Is, the, is, is, is how God reacts to human rebellion, right? Only he holds it in for a time and then he diverts it and places it in a particular focus place or all of the world at the end of time. But we tend to think of sin in terms of its psychological, personal, or social effects. That is how does sin affect me? Well, you know, it makes me depressed. It's, it, it's devastating to my life, to my marriage, to my family. And so we, we think of the, the personal or the psychological effects of sin or we talk about the social effects of sin. Um, the, the, the decision that was made that came down is going to have social ramifications, right? It's just going to affect our society. It's going to affect kids and adoptions and all kinds of stuff in ways that we, we can't even fully comprehend. It's going to have an effect. But the primary danger for us, just the primary danger for us is not its personal, psychological, or social effects. There's a greater danger, the greatest danger, and that is the danger of God himself. People don't talk about that or think about that. It's like, what does this direction as a society, where is it leading us in terms of our relationship to Almighty God and his judgment? Now that's a bigger, in other words, the biggest enemy here, the biggest danger is the wrath of God itself. Not just the sociological effects or the personal effects of sin. This, this city is about to be hammered. And, and it just could be that, 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 that the words of Jonah 1.1 will be said about our time or, or said about our culture in which the evil of this city has come up before me, God on his throne, and now he is going to act decisively and intensely. That's the, 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 the wrath of God is something that we have to, as Christians, keep in the forefront of my mind, as well as our salvation, but wrath. You can't even understand salvation apart from wrath. You can't understand the love of God without understanding the wrath of God. It's just the case. That, that song we sung, um, The Love of God, I don't know if you noticed it. I, I saw it second service, and I'm like, I've never sang that verse before. The middle one talked about kingdoms falling and people refusing to pray and calling on rocks to kill them. That's Revelation 7. Where, where they're saying, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. That's, so verse 2 that you just sang on the love of God, that was all about God's wrath. And then the very next one about the oceans being an inkwell. And if, we, if it was an inkwell, we wouldn't have enough ink to talk about the love of God. You just, brilliant. You can't understand the, le the, the length and the depth and the height of God's love. And you have to understand where we were headed apart from that. It's like those two things show the vastness of God's love and mercy. You have to understand both of those those things. God's wrath. You just, that is the major danger. That was the major danger of the Ninevites. It wasn't just the social ramifications of their evil and violent actions. And to pause and remember that all God has to do is whisper and mountains fall 
like Everest trembles. All God has to do is whisper and the oceans will rise and capsize cities. And all God has to do is whisper and the nations will return to dust. I mean, that's, that's the almighty God. I just feel a sense of trembling before a holy and awesome God. That's the message that Jonah preached. This city was about to go down in flames in a big way. A big way. But notice I titled it A Mercy of a Wrathful Word. God doesn't give us words like this ahead of time because he's mean. God gives us words like this ahead of time because he's merciful. And it's actually his love and mercy that drives him to say, listen, you only got so much time before the end comes down. You only have so much time before the flood comes. You only have so much time before sulfur comes down. Just, you know, he even gave Abraham a chance to preach in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and couldn't find anybody. Remember? That's, that's God's mercy. So even this, even this really dark, wrathful word is, is, is a heart of mercy of God. It's like, I don't want to do this, but, but this is what's going to happen in 40 days unless there's repentance. He doesn't even offer repentance as an option here. But it is a merciful word. And the Ninevites sense that if there's 40 days, then that means there is a chance. There's a chance for mercy. And so what we find in response to this, and I want you to notice how much text is devoted to describing their response. I mean, the little part that talked about Jonah's commission and him going to Nineveh, those are just a couple short verses. And then now what the Ninevites do, look how much text is devoted to them. And it's nothing less than radical. It starts off and it says, and the people of Nineveh, Nineveh believed God. They believed those five words. They believed them to be true. They believed that if, if nothing happens 40 days, something's coming downtown that they don't want to be there for. Can you imagine in Fairfield if we heard those words like five, 40 days and Fairfield's going to be overthrown? And we, we'd probably be heading up into the mountains with our RVs or something because it's bad. Well, they believed those words. That's going to happen to Nineveh. They believed. And interestingly enough, everything else that follows that word belief is an outworking of that belief. They believed those five words, and therefore, they went into action. And that's how biblical faith is supposed to work. When you really believe God's word in both its negative and positive parts about what he's done to bring you back to himself as well as what he will do to you if you don't accept his way of salvation, that kind of belief should issue forth an action, an action of repentance, as we will see. Where there is no moving of action and people say they believe, it's not real belief, period. Faith is active. It produces energy. It has to do something because we believe those five words are true. And look, look, look at the mass of action that this entire city takes. You've probably read the story before, but just slow down and see what they do. It's, I think it's unprecedented. I don't think you can find another place in the, in the Old Testament where an entire city repents to this level. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. They, referring to the townspeople. It's not coming from the top, it's coming from the bottom. It's like the people are hearing this word, it's like, we got to do something. It's just not the preacher or the priest that's calling for a, a fast. It's like, these are the people who are hearing the message. They, the people of the town, called for, um, 
for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And finally, in verse 6, the word actually reaches the king of Nineveh. And it says, and he rose from his throne, he removed his royal robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. That's absolute abject humiliation. And he issued a a proclamation. Now he's sending out a decree and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Normally a fast is an um, abdication of food, but in this case it's water too. Not food, not water. But let man and beast, not just the people, but the animals, be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let them give yourself fervently to prayer. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Um, who knows? They're not going to try and manipulate God. They know that mercy is a free act of his. There's good theology in this, by the way. Who knows? Like, God is not constrained to act with mercy. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, God declares. I am free to give mercy or not. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. That's, that's, ast- that's astounding. You, know, you don't see this thing happening in the cities of Israel, not in that time, not even before that time or after that time. I mean, there's a, it strikes me that there's four things that, that they're kind of express their, their repentance. Um, you notice the repent- repentance is corporate. Like everybody's involved. The king all the way down to the pauper. Even their animals are involved. When have you seen that? Like the animals are actually sackcloth. And these are, the whole community, the whole town, the whole city is, is doing this. No one's, no one's left out. Can you imagine the whole city of Fairfield or New York? Since uh, Nineveh was a great city in its day, New York, everybody just going without food and going without water and wearing sackcloth and sitting in ashes. So it's comprehensive or corporate. It's, it's also, it's expressed physically. They, 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 they go without food. They go without water. These are physical expressions of, 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 of repentance. We're, our culture doesn't have really physical expressions of repentance. We just say, I'm sorry, and we expect you to forgive. It's a lot easier to believe somebody is actually repentant when it comes with physical expression. Interesting, huh? Not in a legalistic sort of way, but man, I just, I'm so torn and they're, they're expressing their repentance physically, corporately, physically, spiritually to God. They're expressing their prayer. Pray mightily to God. In other words, don't give up. Just keep devoutly, um, devotedly praying to Yahweh that we would um, be, 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 be forgiven, that mercy would be extended to us. So the whole city's praying. That's the vertical spiritual dimension. And then also, did you, I don't know if you noticed, but there's also the call for a moral change. Turn away from your evil ways. That's the key. Stop the violence. Like, we are a brutal people. We are a bloody people. We need to turn. So here you have, it's, 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 it's corporate, and it's, it's, it's physical, and it's spiritual, and it's moral. You don't see anything like this elsewhere in the Old Testament, at least not to this level. To me, that is a vivid picture of what true repentance looks like which is why so much text is devoted to it. That it's, it's not just about feeling a sense of sadness over some guilt that you have and then saying I'm sorry, but then going back and doing it again. It's, it's like there is a shift that happens in a person when repentance takes 
hold of their heart. They hear the word of the Lord. In this case, it was just five words of the Lord, and they respond to it. It shifts their inner being. So now they're expressing it physically and spiritually and morally, a change. And where there is no degree, no degree of moral change in a person's life, when they say that they repent, that repentance is false degree. Now, it is a fruit of repentance. Our moral actions change is a fruit of that shift within the heart. But if there is no change, then the heart has not been changed. That's a rather, I don't know, interesting look at, 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 at what repentance should look like in a different expressions. And there is a biting irony, by the way, in this. Who would have ever suspected this? I mean, the, the one person in the book of Jonah who should have been really sorry and really repentant over his rebellion against the word of God was the Jewish prophet. But we have no discernible word of repentance from his prayer. Where is it that we see this unbelievably radical faith and repentance? It's the pagans. It's the Ninevites. It's the ones that make them so angry to begin with. That's, a, that's, a, that's an irony. But it, it goes deeper than that. I told you in, in an introductory message that at the time in which Jonah was a prophet, the people of Israel were being led by a king by the name of Jeroboam. And he was a king who did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he was causing Israel to do evil. So the Jewish king back home is leading his people in rebellion, and the Ninevite king is leading his people in repentance. Like, you see? And there, it's, it goes even deeper than that. They're like the ironies of the people sometimes who are closest to the Lord, who have the most revelation, they're the ones most resistant to it. And the people who are farthest away from the Lord, lost beyond belief, are sometimes the most sensitive to the word of the Lord. All the Ninevites have is five words. People of Israel and its king, they have the books of Moses and the prophets and Elijah and Elisha. They have words upon words. They have revelation upon revelation, but they don't get it. That is, a, um, for a church-going person like myself and my family and you all, it is possible that the people who have a lot of revelation, a lot of word, a lot of truth, are sometimes the most resistant and numb to its words. And sometimes the people who are most lost and most far away and, and, and most guilty are the very ones whose ears are most receptive. Just five words, that's all it took. A reminder to us that um, what Jesus said was true, and that is, um, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's not a single word that is not his that we should not listen or live by. Now that needs some interpretation, but that's all I have to say about that. This is radical belief and repentance. You don't see anything like it. And you can anticipate the outcome. God already said 40 days and the hammer's going to come down and I'm going to overthrow you like Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see this outrageous mercy that God shows to this, um, this evil city. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, that is, there was this moral change that came from within. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. It's an outrageous mercy. I don't know if you noticed, but the word rage is an outrageous. 
It's something that we kind of say outrageous in a humorous sort of way, but outrageous, technically speaking, is a word meaning it's so beyond belief that you're mad about it, right? And in the next chapter, you're going to find out that Jonah's mad about this whole thing. Like, the, the, the fact that the bad guys, the evil guys, the guys he hates, the enemies of Israel, the ones that are going to come in within one generation and just mow over Israel and destroy his hometown, are you serious? You can almost hear the, um, the objection. Are you, are you serious? These guys are going to get off scot-free? These guys are a menace. They're evil. They're horrible. They cut people's heads off. They impale them on stakes. They skin them alive. What, you gonna, what seriously? You're going to let them off the hook that easy? Well, I'm going to rule it for my wrath. <laughs> well, there's more to that story in chapter 4 where he objects rather, I don't know, violently is probably not the right word, but angrily against God's mercy. But this is uh, a display of God's mercy towards, um, towards outsiders and people who are at some of the deepest levels of violence and immorality. God shows mercy. That's why I said this thing, whole thing grips with mercy in ironic ways. So what do we take from this? What do, what do we take from this, um, this chapter? I think the main point is rather simple. But I'll say it anyway. Remind us that um, they're just God, the God of the Bible, God of Scripture is ready He's ready to grant mercy to the worst, quote-unquote, of people. And he does show mercy to the worst of people. And that truth, it sounds so simple, but when it comes into real life and real flesh and blood injustice, um, that can be a truth that is very, very um, offensive to people who feel or think themselves to be morally superior or have a greater righteousness or feel in any way, shape, or form entitled to God's grace in ways that other people are not. To people who have that spiritual sense of superiority, this kind of mercy is outrageous. That's why so many people are upset at Jesus, you know? He comes onto the scene, he finds the same spirit. Everyone's upset because one of his main guys is a tax collector by the name of Matthew. And of all people that he invites himself over to dinner for, it's Zacchaeus, the tax collector who's exploited people. So the very person he forgives is the harlot who weeps over his feet. It's like he, all, the, all the wrong people are accepted and all the right people are left out. That's, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem just. It seems outrageous. But that's grace. That's grace. That's grace. On the other hand, just think of how encouraging it is, you know, the heart, most hardened heart, the most lost person, the person who is, who is trapped in a lifestyle that we know is self-destructive. Just to know that, you know, a simple word, in Nineveh's case, five words, set them free. And to know that the power of God's mercy is there to soften the hardest of hearts and the worst of all people, if I can put it that way. Sons, daughters who have walked away from the Lord, friends, um, groups of people that we think there's no way you should ever be saved and God should pour out hell on you um, to recognize that God does show mercy and wakes those kinds of people up as he'd done for many of us. So that's the main point. Let me just offer several subpoints to this just to clarify what was said in this chapter. You'll notice 
Because this chapter really does show us the power of God's word. Five words make all the difference. Five words bring transformation. That has been sustained through the whole of the Bible, that it is indeed the word of God when received with humble and open and contrite ears, it transforms life. His word. Just a reminder. You're not going to transform your life by listening to other people's words or by somehow disciplining yourself into a better person. It's going to come from God speaking truth to you and hopefully your ears are, rece are receptive and attentive. As I pointed out, sometimes those who have the most revelation are the most resistant to it and sometimes the people who are the most lost are the most receptive of it. And to keep our hearts humble and listening and to keep ourselves from the deadening effect of too much revelation hope that makes sense of not caring for what God says so the power of divine word uh, also within this we see the reality of wrath it is the reality in which we live and as I said you cannot understand love or salvation apart from it I don't know if you've ever noticed in your own life but if you look at an unjust situation which made you really angry um, what you really wanted was satisfaction watched the movie Taken not too long ago or Taken 3 I don't hope I'm not spoiling this for anybody but I love all three of them you know why because in the end the dad brings down the hammer right and um, got to the end of number three and, and he's a, a, again he's avenging injustice and there's this part in the especially us men our hearts where it's like yes brought down the hammer on the bad guys and there's a sense of resolve and sense of resolution and even happiness Kind of sounds strange. It's a happiness over vengeance. Well, anger created by injustice needs to be satisfied. We know it by our own experience emotionally. When you see somebody who's wronged you, get wronged in return, there is a sense of, wow, it kind of feels good to see that closed up and him get justice. I mean, we won't always articulate it that way, but it feels satisfying. Well, we're told in the, in the scripture that God's anger and injustice has to be satisfied. It has to go somewhere. It's like a flood of water. You might be able to dam it up for a while, but if it keeps coming, eventually it's going to spill over. The only thing the Lord does is he directs that wrath, his anger. But it has to be satisfied. And it can only be satisfied in one or two places. Um, one, of course, was Good Friday. I, at the end of the day, Jesus didn't come to save us from bad breath or bad hair or, or a bad marriage. He came to save us from the wrath of God. And God diverted that flood of anger and satisfied it on his son instead of us. To the point where God's like, yes, I am satisfied. My anger has been relinquished, it has been released, and it has been satisfied. At the same time, God is the very one who paid for that to be satisfied. And the other is still yet future, a fixed day. A fixed day in which um, the hammer will come down. For all who have not taken refuge in the provision of the cross and of Jesus Christ, it will come down on our planet. Those are the two places, and it will be satisfied, and it will be satisfied for all eternity. That's the reality in which our world lives. And finally, the condition of repentance. It's pretty clear. What changed everything is that the people got on their knees and they repented. First they believed and they repented. And that has always been, in the scripture, the condition of mercy and grace. Um, is the belief in what God says, what he's done for us, 
to believe his word made flesh, and this leaving behind of the old life, repentance. Those, that is the condition, faith, repentance for salvation. And that, that sounds simple, but we live in a climate, morally speaking, where people want their salvation from Jesus and they want to live however they want at the same time. And I'm thoroughly convinced both John the Baptist and Jesus would say that's hogwash. Um, the condition of mercy is to acknowledge that you're wrong and to come to that sense of repentance and that sense that guilt and sense that the hammer was coming down and to realize, oh, you, you, you took it from me and to, to genuinely leave it behind at some degree. I know repentance is a process of a lifetime, but at the same time, it is, it is, it is, it is the condition of God's grace and mercy that's faith and repentance and to keep that crystal clear in our minds you cannot have all of your sinful lifestyle fully and completely embraced by you at the same time claim salvation in jesus those are contradictions in terms that never would have worked in nineveh we'd say hey just just keep on with that violent stuff and and we're going to call out to god at the same that's the contradiction in terms so listen if you've come into this church this morning and you know you have no relationship with god let me just the, 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 the story is, is, is crystal clear for you. Like, the hammer's coming down um, because we're sinners. And, um, but God has made a way for us. He has diverted his wrath, his blood onto his son. And so he calls you, come and believe and accept my salvation. Repent. And if that's you this morning, I just hope you hear the Lord. I hope you hear those five words in Hebrew. Um, that God is a God of mercy, but he's also a God of wrath. Um, if you're a Christian brother or sister and you know that you're living that double lifestyle where you are living in a hard-hearted state of sin at the same time you're trying to hold on to this thing called salvation, stop. This morning is the morning to hear the Lord speak to you. Don't be like the Israelite people who were in sin while the pagans were repenting. Just come clean before the Lord. You don't, you don't want to face his hand of discipline. And for the rest of us, just, oh, to recognize that the hammer came down on one and not the many and that we're here this morning because mercy was paid in full and God's love has been spilled over us um, in an amazing way you know our repentance is not atoning only the blood of Jesus is and it's that that we hold on to who took our place and for us just to know oh Lord thank you um, to praise the Lord give thanks to him for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever in terms of payment, and in terms of love for us, just to rejoice and know that the hammer has been removed from us. Amen? He is good. Father, we pray in your name that you would humble your people, that we would have very sensitive ears to your word always, that there would be no shred of, of self-importance or self-righteousness or moral superiority. May we know that we're accepted on the merits of Christ's work alone, on his atoning death alone, that we too were under the hammer, we too were, like all mankind, objects of wrath, but you being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which you loved us, you lifted us out of it. Keep our hearts repentant and soft before you, O God. We pray for that unique tension of, of anger in the face of injustice and also compassion, knowing that we too shared a similar fate. 
continue your work through this church, Lord, to be a light in this community. Uh, may we know that your spirit is with us and uh, where God is with us, who can be against us. So we walk forward not in fear, but in faith. We walk forward not in, in cowardice, but in conviction of truth, knowing that our king has won the day and he has made a way for us. Show your mercy, O oh God, through your people in the city. We pray for our city. We pray for Fairfield. We ask that you would just do a work, continue your work of, of leavening the whole lump and bringing your gospel into the dark neighborhoods of, of, our, of, our, um, of our town um, and bringing mercy to its streets. We love you, Father. We thank you for all you've done and for your heart of mercy. In Christ's name, amen.